All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 37. And last week we began our look at the life of Joseph in a series entitled, God is with us. Often when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, we can lose our perspective, lose our understanding of what is truly true. And as we go through the life of Joseph, we find a great plan through great difficulties, giving us a great story of a great God. And throughout the entire story of Joseph, we find this, that God was with him every step of the way. Paul the Apostle told us very clearly in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. He said, For whatever things were written before, that is referring to the Old Testament, as he's writing to New Testament believers in Christ, the Old Testament was invaluable for two reasons. Number one, they were written for our learning. And number two, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Notice that the hope is predicated upon patience and comfort. And the reason the Scriptures can supply that patience and comfort for us is that it helps us in our learning, in our understanding of who God is and what God is doing, that we can therefore know that God is in control and that He is leading us each and every step of the way, that His plan will be perfectly fulfilled and therefore hope can be generated within our hearts. So as we continue this morning, we found that last week Joseph was given two dreams. He quickly shared those dreams with his family to only, to only to discover that his family wasn't nearly as enthusiastic about those dreams as he was. His father Jacob questioned his uh, challenge of his authority. The brothers got mad. For Jacob had favored Joseph, giving him a multicolored coat to indicate that he was going to be the successor, that he was going to be uh, the one who will inherit the uh, firstborn's rights because uh, Reuben had uh, disqualified himself, had relinquished that by sleeping with one of the concubines of Jacob, Bilhah. You know, again... Often we read the Bible and we say, oh, these heroes of the Bible had such great spiritual families, right? But I don't know about you, but when I read about the families of the Bible, I often discover that dysfunctionality was found in the Bible way before our society. And now Joseph, after telling his brothers and his fathers these two dreams... We concluded in chapter 1, verse 11, that the brothers were filled with envy and that Jacob kept these things in his mind. And so this morning we continue in in verse 12 of chapter 37. Then the brothers went to feed their father's flocks in Shechem. And Israel, another name for Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flocks in Shechem? 
Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. And then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, uh, and he went to Shechem. And now a certain man found him there, and he was wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding the flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, and I have heard them say, Let us go to Dotham. And Joseph went after his brothers, found them in Dotham. Now this is quite a long distance from the Valley of Hebron. Why the brothers had taken the flocks to these areas to feed, commentators still ask that question without any resolve. Many beliefs that the brothers were engaged in activities that they shouldn't be. And of course, if you remember from earlier on in chapter 37, Joseph literally brought word back to Jacob concerning the other brothers and their conduct, and Jacob wasn't happy with them. He was displeased. Apparently, Joseph had learned how to be a tattletale. And now, once again, Jacob sends him to his brothers. Now, this is quite a ways off, almost 50 miles. And the brothers are there. And what they are doing, we do not know. But finding them in Dotham, we now discover that as Joseph is approaching, the brothers see him from afar off. Verse 18. Now, when they saw him afar off, even before he came to them, they conspired against him to kill him. The heart of man. We may feel that we hide sin in our hearts, but as the New Testament tells us, all things are open and naked before the Lord. Let us also see here in our text the progression of sin. It started with envy of Joseph, and now it is conspiring into killing Joseph. And this is very similar to what James referred to in his book that we just concluded not so long ago, that when sin is conceived, it begins with the desire of the heart. It begins in the mind. Then the sin is conceived, and when, bring forth, uh, when it's brought forth, it brings forth death. This is why Jesus told us, that those who prided themselves in, not have, in having committed adultery, he said to them, well, if you've looked with a, uh, at lust with a woman, at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. You already have. He said to them, you say you haven't murdered. Well, that's good. But I say to you, anyone angry at his brother. And John goes on later to say anyone who hates his brother is guilty of murder. Sin begins in the heart and the mind of man. If that sin is not restrained by the new birth, if the sin is not restrained by the spiritual sanctification that we as believers experience day by day, that is the process by which God is taking us out of darkness and bringing us into light, out of death into life, and creating us into the image of Jesus Christ. Today in our world, much of what we see manifested is the depravity of man's heart unbridled, unrestrained. 
what we see occurring today, just 20 years ago, would have been unthinkable. And today we see it openly manifest before us. The depth of the wickedness of man's heart is immeasurable. It's wicked before God. David prayed, he said, Lord, search me to see if there be any wicked way within me. We like to believe that society is born in goodness and then that goodness is ruined or tarnished or diminished by the environment in which we live. In fact, a recent poll through Legionnaire Ministry and also through Lifeway indicates that more and more evangelicals today believe that people are born good, then they sin, and that goodness is diminished. The Bible tells us just the opposite, that all of us who are in Adam are born into sin. Some call it original sin, meaning we sin as individuals because we are sinners. It is the nature of the fallen heart before God. It is that heart that must be rectified before God through the new birth in Jesus Christ. It is that sin that must be breached before we can have relationship with God through Christ. So as they envied, they coveted, and now they're plotting and conspiring to murder Him. It is interesting that man often feels that his plans and plottings go unnoticed to God. That couldn't be the farthest from the truth. For God sees the heart and the intents of man, and nothing man can ever do will stop or prohibit or prevent the plans of God for his creation. But as we continue, notice in verse 19, after they had desired to conspire against him, to kill him, Then they said to one another, verse 19, look, the dreamer is coming. Oh, they still remember that dream, don't they? The Hebrew word here that is used for dreamer is master of dreams or one who masters his dreams. In verse 20, come therefore, let us now kill him, cast him into some pit, and we will say that some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Notice, the intent, the purpose for killing him was to cease the fulfillment of the dreams, the plans and purposes that God had for Joseph. That's their intent. If we kill him, let's see what will happen. Let's see if these dreams will certainly come to place. Now, you remember the dreams that we read about last week were the fact that the brothers would bow to Joseph at some point in their life. And later that not only would his brothers, but his father and mother would bow to Joseph at some point in their life. And this was, of course, troubling to them. But honestly, they wanted to prohibit, they wanted to stop what uh, Joseph thought he was going to fulfill. And as a result, they began to set him up, to kill him. 
You know, with family like this, who needs enemies, right? You think you have it hard when you go to Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving. Hey, I'm 54 and I still sit at the kids' table, okay? They just won't let me graduate. But these family members, individuals that were supposed to be, of course, uh, having his back and supporting him, are working against him. But then Reuben, of all individuals, notice this, the oldest, but Reuben heard it and delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him, that is, Reuben might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. Interesting. The one who forfeited the birthright due to his sin is now interceding on Joseph's behalf. Reuben here said, just simply throw him into the pit. Now this pit was most likely what is known as a cistern. It was a pit that was dug specifically in the rock that had a very narrow opening and then expanded within, and it would catch rainwater, and therefore they would have uh, water as a supply in times of drought. Do you know that the Midwest here in America is going through one of the most significant droughts we've ever had? I was surprised to learn that. But for them, this was an opportunity. Just throw him in the pit. And Reuben had every intention to come back, save him, and bring him back to his father. In verse 23, so it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, and that tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, for there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. So after throwing him in the pit, they have lunch. They ordered in Jimmy John's. Can you believe this? Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, really? I'm in the pit and you're eating a sandwich? They thought that they had completed their task. They thought that this was now going to come to an end and this dream was never going to be fulfilled. For them to state that they sat down to have a meal, it means that they had a sense of comfort and relief within them. It's taken care of. It's done. It's over. But, in verse 25, then they lifted up their eyes and looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way, carrying them down to Egypt. So a caravan's now coming through the Ishmaelites. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, And let not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother, and our flesh, and his brothers listened. Well, he is our brother after all, but why should he simply die in the pit when we can profit off of it? Now, let's remember, 
that these are the individuals that the 12 tribes of Israel are all founded upon, okay? It's amazing when you read these things. So seeing this caravan of the Ishmaelites coming through, they said, you know, they're on their way to Egypt. We could sell him into their hands. They can take care of it. We can be on our way, and then we know it's over and done with. And on top of it, we make a little bit of money. In verse 28, then the Midianites traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. It is interesting that now we see that these 20 pieces of silver, of course, reminds us of how our Lord was betrayed. And how he was given up by Judas to the religious leaders. Judas thinking that he was doing Jesus a favor by mediating a deal between him and the religious leaders. Being paid for it to tell the religious leaders where the guards could find Jesus that night. Thinking that he was possibly doing a good thing. And here his brothers, of course, centuries before, give us a little glimpse of what was still yet to come in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Joseph Innocent, the one chosen by God to do something, cast into the pit, now sold to the Midianites for 20 pieces of silver. And as Joseph now has been sold out by his brothers... We remember those words in Matthew 27, verses 9 through 10. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was pierced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed him. So what's the difference between the 20 and the 30? Well, 30 pieces of silver was for a slave that was whole. They sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver, which would have been an individual sold into slavery who had a uh, handicap of some sort. So he wasn't even priced in that way. But again, we remember the betrayal. We remember the money that exchanged hands. We remember the fact that a life was valued at such a low price. And yet, in and of it all, God is at work. In verse 29, But then Reuben returned to the pit. And indeed, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more. And I, where I, where shall I go? He couldn't go home. So they took Joseph's tunic and killed a kid of the goats and dipped it in the tunic, the tunic in the blood of the goats. Then they said the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father who said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. 
Without a doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all of his sons and all of his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my, father, uh, to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. When Paul said that the Old Testament was given to us for learning, he gave it to us that we may have a proper perspective on everything that occurs in our life. That perspective includes the understanding and the knowledge of the fact that God is with us, that He will never leave us or forsake us. And if I may this morning, I'd like to raise your vision. I'd like to let you look a little higher in our text. For we see the events transpiring throughout the 37th chapter of Genesis. But that's only one perspective. There are several perspectives that must be taken into account. Now remember that each and every one of these perspectives is all looking, they're all looking at the exact same thing, are they not? They're all looking at the same thing. There's God's perspective. There's the brothers and Jacob's perspective. There's Joseph's perspective. And then there is our perspective as we read the story together. As we begin looking at these various perspectives, let us understand that it is imperative that when we go through difficult times and when we conclude while we are in those difficult times that God is not with us, we must be reminded of his perspective upon the same difficulties that we are experiencing. We see those difficulties impacting our life one way, but he sees them in a completely different way. Allowing these things, not for our demise, but for our betterment. And as we go through difficult times, God is ultimately working out his plans and purposes for us. So according to God's perspective, he gave Joseph these dreams to begin the preparation period for the plan that God had for Joseph. However, when Joseph revealed that plan, when he revealed that dream, not knowing how those dreams would be fulfilled, he only had a small, minuscule microcosm of a look when God knew the whole plan from beginning to end. And now we find that after these dreams had been given, Joseph was certainly not immediately elevated to that place of authority over his brothers and his father, but now finds himself in a pit. It seems like this is inconsistent. Something's gone wrong here. 
How in the world could I be uh, the individual standing amongst the adoration of my brothers when I find myself confined to a pit? It would challenge anyone's reasonable mind. It would be easy to conclude, or for Joseph to conclude, that God is not with me. What happened? Did I do something wrong? I've been stripped of my coat, and now they're trying to get rid of me, and now they sold me into slavery. And now I find myself in Egypt. How could this ever fulfill the purposes of God in my life? It's because that's exactly where God wanted him to be. When God begins to work in our life, when God begins to reveal His will for our life, there is the mistake that we can make to assume that the path will be pleasant. That the path would be without potholes. Now, if you lived in Chicago any length of time, you can't drive on a street without finding a pothole. In fact, I remember one time seeing a pothole in the city of Chicago and there was a Volkswagen sticking out of it. Often, the road in which God sets us upon is a very difficult road. It's a road that is constructed and architected to work in us before God can work through us. Oh, Joseph, you're going to fulfill the plan and purpose I have for you, but the means by which you do so, the path in which you take, may not be anything that you suspect. So the second perspective that we have to take into consideration is that of the brothers. Sitting down to have a meal, they thought this was over and done with. Let's see if this dream really comes to pass or not. Let's see if Joseph will truly rule over us. How can he from the bottom of a pit? Jacob was so convinced by this evidence, this circumstantial evidence, that Joseph was dead. And immediately ran to the worst conclusion, discounting the dream in which Joseph had twice, and began to mourn for the loss of his son. I don't know about you, but when I find myself in difficult times, when things are going sideways on me, when I get bad news, it's quick to run to the worst conclusion, isn't it? It's quick to think, oh, it's all over. We're done. That's it. And then God has a tendency to step in a way, in a way that you never anticipated and change everything in a moment. And then you kind of laugh. You say, oh, why was I so worried? Why was I so fearful? God worked it out better than I could have ever imagined. You see, from God's perspective, let us always remember these words that are found in Isaiah 46.10. That our God, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, meaning He knows what's going to happen, he sees the beginning and the end all at the same time. And this confidence comes from the understanding, as Isaiah then continues, 
by saying, my counsel shall stand, meaning whatever plan I have put forth, nothing is going to inhibit it. Nothing is going to prevent it. Nothing is going to stop it. And I will do all my pleasure. So looking at the brothers, it says, oh, you guys are just kidding yourself. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? As God looks down from heaven and laughs. Man may think in his hubris, in his arrogance, that I can stop what God has started. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. As the brothers were eating and laughing undoubtedly and Joseph was in the pit, Joseph could have despaired and most likely did. But at the end of Joseph's life, Joseph tells his brothers that what you intended for evil, God has turned to good. As many of you know, my wife and daughter work for a private Christian school in Arlington Heights, Christian Liberty Academy. And last year, at the beginning of the 21-22 school season, the Chicago Tribune did a hit piece on CLA and other private schools for their refusal to require masking within the school. And they had a picture of the front entrance of CLA on it. And the caption read, Super Spreader Event Takes Place in Unmasked Schools. Something along those lines. And the article went on to talk about the irresponsibility of these schools. Well, the only problem was is that that picture and that article were taken and published two weeks before the school session ever started at CLA. It was a complete and utter fabrication. Dean and I brought it to the leadership's attention over there. And as my wife was talking with them, they said, well, what God, uh, what they intend for evil, God intends for good. Last year, they had one of the largest enrollments that they ever had, and partly due to that article. What was supposed to scare people away drew people in. And this year they have another a large, large enrollment of students. The world may think that they can stop what God wants to do. But I would encourage you to sit back and let's see what God does. But then we come to Joseph. And as Joseph is in that pit and the brothers rejoicing, let us remember the words of Job in Job 42, 2. I know that you can do anything, speaking of God, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Nothing man can do to, will ever stop what God wants to do. It is interesting that when you go to Matthew 27, It is the scene where the individuals are given the choice by Pilate to either release Barabbas, 
or Jesus. And in Matthew's account, it is interesting that Matthew adds for us the knowledge that the reason that Jesus was handed over to Pontius Pilate for execution was due to the envy of the religious leaders. He threatened their authority. He threatened their ideas. He threatened their personal wealth as they were so corrupt and gaining wealth corruptly from the people. He was a threat to them in every single sense of the word. And their envy led them to desire to kill him, just like the envy led the brothers of Joseph to kill him. But the religious leaders had a problem. They couldn't execute someone under Roman occupation. So it was up to the Romans to find him guilty and to execute him on behalf of the religious leaders. But yet in it all, When the crowd shouted Barabbas, thinking that Barabbas was going to be a quicker means to an end. Barabbas was more uh, willing to stand up against the Romans. For Jesus, all of a sudden, became what we thought he was going to be, uh, was our Messiah delivering us from the Roman oppression. He became a friend to Rome. He told us to forgive them. He told us to love them. And now we see that he talks about a kingdom, but he will not usher that kingdom in through military means. So Barabbas, we're going to go with him. For he more likely will do what we want him to do. Now all the plotting of men, the people in the crowd, the religious leaders, even Pilate's wife said, honey, don't even get involved in this thing. I I had a dream and it's just not going to go well. Pilate really didn't want anything to do with it. If you read it carefully, he washed his hands of it. I don't want to have any more to do with this. But from all of their perspectives, when the crowd began to chant, Barabbas, Barabbas, you thought it was over, right? When they escorted Jesus to the cross, you thought it was over, right? When he hung there between two thieves, you thought it was over. As people uh, selfishly and uh, mocked him as they walked by, as he hung there, you thought it was all over, that this troublemaker, this rabble-rouser was going to come to an end once and for all. But then he died. And they were still threatened by him and said, oh, to the Romans, you need to put a legion, you need to cover the tomb, we want to make sure the disciples don't steal the body. And then the third day happened. And when the women came to the tomb, the tomb was open. The angels were there and said, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? Nothing can stop the plans and purposes of God. I have no doubt that Satan rejoiced when he saw the Messiah hanging there from the cross. And as Christ hung his head and said, it was finished, oh, (laughs) I'd like to say Satan was finished. And on the third day when he rose again, Satan shuddered undoubtedly. This is God. I say this to encourage you. Oh, man will plot against God. Man will try to hinder what God wants to do. 
Man will persecute God's people as they hated him, so too they will hate us. And yet, when it's all said and done, you're going to be standing the victor in it all. For we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory as Christians. So leading us now to Joseph in that pit, overwhelmed by his circumstances, literally, right? Unable to free himself, unable to escape, not knowing what was going to happen next. Would he die of starvation? Would he die of thirst? Would he drown as the cistern filled with water? He, not, he didn't know. And then all of a sudden, he's being lifted out again. And once again, it goes from bad to worse, right? Now he's a slave being taken to Egypt. How could this possibly be? And yet, as we watch this unfold, we hear the whisper of Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, obviously, Jacob and Joseph never read that. But they personally experienced the truth of it. And they saw what the hand of God can do. If the promise worked for them, they will work for us today. For God and His Word have not changed. I think of Paul. When Paul the Apostle was told that he was going to suffer many things for his following of Christ, he was going to experience resistance every step of the way. And he listed out in the life of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, 22-23, you can read it on your own, all the things he experienced in fulfilling that. Why do we assume that the fulfillment of God's will is going to be easy? Why do we assume that the fulfillment of God's will is always going to be indicated by a peace within our heart? Why do we think that the fulfillment of God's will is going to spare us from trial, trouble, and tribulation when the Bible tells us just the opposite? Again, aren't you glad you came for an uplifting uplifting service? And yet in it all, God is working. I think what the writer of Proverbs said in Proverbs 21.30, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Nothing can deter His plan. Or in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. As one wrote, he said this, Dr. Worsby, The working of God's providence are indeed awesome. And this ought to be a great source of encouragement to us in difficult circumstances of life. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. And of course, how could we go any farther without reciting Isaiah 55, 8 and 9? When God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways Uh, Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. One of the certainties that I've come to as a Christian after 30-some years of walking with him, I believe that there is a God, and I believe that I am not him. I often get it wrong. It would be easy for Joseph to get it wrong. We don't know how he reacted until the end in Genesis 50. But now we find that he's in Egypt as a slave in the house of Potiphar, one of the elites of the Egyptian guard. And it looks hopeless. And yet, I'd like to tell you that it's going to get better right away. It's not. For the next step after the pit is the prison. And yet in it all, God is working out His plan perfectly. Don't be quick to judge or to determine that God has abandoned you. For the Bible tells us that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And as Joseph was confident or continued to be reminded of this fact, let me remind you today, the Lord is with you.